Well, good morning again. If this is uh, your first Q&A, probably you've uh, joined our church in the last uh, two or three months. Whenever there are five Sundays in a calendar month, uh, I take that time to answer your questions. Uh, we will return to 1 Corinthians in a, a new section, a new chapter next week in chapter 8 as uh, Paul switches from marriage and singleness and talks about uh, a new and very important uh, subject. But for this uh, morning, we have uh, great questions, as always, theological as well as practical. Let's jump right in. The first is, uh, what is the biblical role of a grandparent toward a grandchild? Um, You know, there is no uh, direct instruction or commands for a grandparent to a grandchild in Scripture. However, there are many principles that are very helpful. You know, one of the most frustrating and difficult things in becoming a parent, especially a new parent, uh, can be navigating what the grandparents say in uh, trying to tell you how to raise their grandchildren. This can be especially difficult uh, if the grandparents come from a uh, different culture and especially difficult uh, if the grandparents are not saved. And so I want to give you some instructions if you are a grandparent or Uh, grandparent-to-be, whether soon or within the next few decades, um, to understand that, first, as we've said many times, that the key structural unit in society and also within the church, as God has ordained it, is the family. And you have to understand that when the scriptures were written and in biblical times, grandparents were way more involved, often lived with uh, uh, their children and grandchildren, in a way that is not so much the case in our culture. Uh, It's the case in in many cultures around the world, but just not in our culture. And so the grandparents were not as separated from the grandkids as they would be, uh, generally speaking, in America today. There's two proverbs that I want to make mention of specifically. Uh, I won't have you turn there for the sake of time. Uh, But the first half of Proverbs 17.6 says this, grandchildren are the crown of old men. And I think that's partially true because of Proverbs 13.22. It says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now this one, uh, leaving an inheritance, please understand that this in no way, especially for the Christian, particularly for the Christian, I should say, uh, does not just mean a Uh, monetary, financial, uh, material inheritance. This means that if you are a grandparent, as a Christian, you are to pass down from generation to generation wisdom and knowledge as it pertains to your walk with the Lord. Now, this in no way diminishes the primary responsibility of the actual parents to raise and disciple their children It is their role, it is their job, but the grandparent is to bring wisdom and counsel not only to their children but to their grandchildren as well, Uh, but it in no way is to usurp the authority of the actual parents of your grandchildren. I mean, just think of it this way, whenever you hear of a situation Uh, And often this is the case if you are involved in in, uh, the foster system. You know that often children are being raised by their grandparents. And when you hear that, you 
you know that something's not right. You, you say that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for the grandparents. It's unfortunate for the grandchildren. We understand that uh, that's not a good thing. Often it's done out of necessity, but that is not ideal uh, for anyone. And so we want to be careful that we don't flip it around, that because the parents are involved, that as grandparents you try to take away the, the parents' authority. Uh, this is not a competition. You are not trying to get your, grand, your grandchildren to like you more than their parents because you give bit better gifts or, or, or more fun or whatever it may be. Uh, so in, uh, you, you want to encourage the authority, which includes the discipline and the limitation of gifts and screen time and things of that. You must uh, you, you need to respect uh, the rules of the children, okay? Um, and obviously, I'm talking about when I say children, I mean the grandparents' children and thus the parents of your grandchildren. Um, on a broader scale, the grandparents' responsibility is that of any Christian. Pray, encourage, be available, the one and others but of course with a greater interest. And I want to encourage you grandparents as much as possible to be present in the lives of your grandchildren. But this is very important, what I'm about to say. Your role when you are a grandparent, and I know it gets confusing because you know, we're talking about using the terms child and, and parent, but as a grandparent, your role as a parent is still primary. And so you are still to adhere, even though your children are now grown and raising your grandchildren, you are still to adhere to the biblical commands of such a, for example, fathers do not exasperate your children. Exasperating your children when they are little and in your home is very different than exasperating your children biblically when they themselves are parents. For example, by uh, overtaking their authority in your grandchildren's lives. Say, well, I know mom and dad don't want you to eat candy, but grandpa's got some candy for you. You can't do that. That's exasperating your children, okay? And so you still have a primary responsibility to your direct children, right, the next generation. And in the same way, right, so long as it uh, abides by Scripture, you as the parent need to submit to your parents, now, that doesn't mean that you let the grandparents control how the grandchildren are raised. You understand that, okay, because the Bible is still clear that you are the authority in your children's lives, all right? And so I would say this, going back to what I said about this being very challenging and frustrating, if you are the parent, right, and you're frustrated because how the grandparents are treating your kids, be careful of pride, be careful of not wanting be to, to be told what to do. Understand the grandparents love you and the grandchildren. And for the grandparent, be careful of pride as well, that you get angry because your kids are not listening to you as you tell them how to raise your grandchildren. Everyone has their role, and we must always go to Scripture first. All right? Number two. My question is regarding Seventh-day Adventists. Are they just legalists or, quote, extra-biblical Christians? What I think she means by this is adding to the Scriptures. So not unbiblical, but just adding more things. 
or are their beliefs false? Is it wrong to date an SDA, which is short for Seventh-day Adventist? The foundational beliefs seem sound, but they also believe they are the true Christians and have all these extra rules. Let me give you a little bit of background, which first and foremost will help you understand why traditionally uh, the Seventh-day Adventists have been considered a cult because of their size, one of the four major cults, at least in the Western world. The SDA church actually arose out of a failed prophecy, which in and of itself tells you a lot, because obviously if it was a failed prophecy, it was not from Scripture. In the 1800s, there was a preacher by the name of William Miller. His followers became uh, known as, aptly so, Millerites, and he predicted that Jesus would return around October 26, 22nd, rather, 1844. Now, as we know, Jesus did not return in his second coming uh, in 1844 on October 22nd. And so, of course, a lot of the Millerites fell away. But there were some diehard followers of William Miller who, despite Jesus not coming back on that date, insisted that this prophet, William Miller, could not have been wrong. And so his date was right It was just that the event that he prophesied was incorrect. And so they believe something happened on that day. And what happened on that day, what they believe happened on that day, was actually uh, the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventists and a foundational heresy of the Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, October 22nd, 1844, though it is a date that is still significant for them, was then and still is today referred to in the SDA church as the Great Disappointment. And it was out of the Great Disappointment that the SDA movement was born. According to SDA doctrine, on October 22, 1844, what happened was Christ, having ascended 2,000 years ago, moved from the heavenly holy place to the holy of holies in heaven, to finalize his atoning work. Now, that may be confusing to you, but if it's not, you understand why that's a heresy because his atoning work is not continuous after the ascension. It's one and done. Now, the SDA movement um, is based primarily on the teachings of a woman named Ellen G. White, that is her married name, whom they claim began having visions shortly after the Great Disappointment based on Miller's teachings. Okay, so even though the SDA is not based on Miller's teaching, is mainly based on White's teaching, her teachings uh, kind of shot out of Miller's teachings as well as the Great Disappointment. And Ellen, Ellen G. White started having these visions when she was 17 and started had them for, I believe, the next 50 years, and is considered an authoritative prophetess of the SDA SDA movement, and the SDA church is based on her teachings. And currently, there are 18 million Seventh-day Adventists in the world, and you understand why historically uh, it's been considered one of the four main cults in uh, the world. Here are some, not all, but some of the problems with the SDA church. 
First is that Ellen White's writings and teachings are considered authoritative. Whenever someone's teachings are considered authoritative and they're outside of Scripture, you have a problem. It's a bigger problem when a, an entire so-called church is based on them. The second big problem, uh, obviously arising out of that, is uh, the challenges to justification by faith alone. Right? First, we've seen that uh, they teach Christ's continuing atoning work in heaven, the final phase of which began on October 22nd, 1844. They teach what is known as righteousness by faith instead of justification by faith. And this is a belief that our standing before God involves not just the imputed righteousness of Christ, and so we are justified by the work of Christ and He imputes His perfect righteousness upon us, but that our standing before God also involves the imparted righteousness of God. And let me clarify for you for that. Let me clarify that for you. The imparted righteousness of Christ is our ability, now that we are saved, and this is how we would see it, now that we are saved, we are able to live righteously with His help to glorify God. Our standing before God, as we understand it, as the Scripture teaches it, is based on our imputed righteousness and our ability to serve and obey God in a way that honors Him is because we are saved. The SDA says both the imputed righteousness, which we would call justification by faith, as well as their ongoing obedience to Christ, though they admit it's with Christ's help, but that is also part of their standing with God. So you see a kind of mix there, which ultimately we would say is works righteousness, though they would agree with the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus is God. So what would they say justification is? At, at the moment of his death and there later in our lives at the moment of salvation. Only for our sins before we were saved. And now our sins are covered by our behavior. Okay? So there are challenges, though not as clear as those who flat out deny justification by faith alone. There are challenges to justification by faith alone. Um, thirdly, they have a legalistic view of the Old Testament. Uh, they believe that they are bound by Old Testament laws. The most common is the law of the Sabbath, which they believe, uh, according as they did in the Old Testament, is on Saturday. Right? That's why... Actually, a lot of churches in our situations, they meet in an SDA church because it's empty on Sundays, and so they don't own their own building. They can rent an SDA church because they meet on Saturdays. Um, so a lot of people say, well, that's not really a big deal because we know that Sabbath was Saturday for the Jews. But if you read uh, Ellen White's readings, she actually says this, and this, uh, there's some confusion on this. This is talking about the future, okay, as we understand it especially we understand it being the time of the tribulation, but she says this, those who worship on Sunday 
will receive the mark of the beast and cannot be saved. So that's pretty significant. Okay? Uh, the second uh, most common uh, view of the old, uh, law of the old, old Testament that the S- SDA is uh, bound by our dietary laws. So a lot, of, a lot of them are vegetarians or they don't eat red meat. So and uh, there are a lot of dietary laws. I've mentioned that they were considered a cult. I don't know if you caught that, that traditionally they were considered a cult. Uh, in recent years, evangelicals disagree on whether or not uh, they can technically be classified as a cult. I think mainly because of their belief in uh, the work of Christ on the cross, the, their uh, belief that Jesus Christ is part of the Holy Trinity, is the Son of God, is God very God. But there are enough issues uh, that I would still lean towards them being a cult. There are enough issues that I would say uh, that they uh, could be Christians, uh, but it would be in spite of their teaching, not because of their teaching, which we could say about many of the uh, major uh, Christian cults and religions, Catholicism uh, included. Okay, uh, And so I think that answers, would you date a Seventh-day Adventist uh, or could you? I would say no. Uh, I, I would even say, you know, I wouldn't even date, uh, uh, well, I'm married, I wouldn't date, but I wouldn't have you date uh, someone who was believed everything we believe but had uh, liberal views on, on, on non-salvific issues, right? Because you're just going to have problems in the future. Where do, you, uh, where do you go to church? How do you raise your children? How do you tithe? How do you, I mean, all of these key things uh, in the scriptures, you're going to have a major uh, issues with, um, and uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, uh, but, but slightly not, uh, it's kind of a moot point because an SDA would not consider you a true believer, and so they wouldn't date you anyway, okay? Question number three. There's been a lot of talk about the coming revival, especially in certain Christian circles. Uh, what does the scripture have to say regarding this topic? Um, I'm going to make an assumption here um, that revival here is talking about revival in the sense of a mass revival, as in a large group of uh, people, uh, usually in the thousands, usually uh, in uh, usually pertains to a nation, like a revival in a nation or in a state or something like that, um, versus uh, what is more clearly in Scripture, which is a personal revival. Uh, as in uh, repentance and revival of the soul, which the Bible does talk very clearly about. Um, But revival generally, when we talk about a revival, such as a revival in America or a revival uh, in Europe or whatever it may be, we're talking about uh, a mass group, a large uh, group of of repentance. And that's, you kind of think about like, Billy Graham's revival movements and where he would have thousands of people in a stadium and thousands would call, come to Christ. We'd call that a mini revival, okay? Uh, this is similar but distinct from an awakening, right? You've heard of the great awakening and you look at church history and there are various awakenings and revivals. The only difference is an awakening would be when that group of, of people, for example, a nation, it's the first time people have turned to Christ uh, versus a revival, Uh, People speak more of revival in the United States because we were, uh, arguably so, but we were based on Christian principles, and so now we're returning to those Christian principles, right? 
So it's really the same thing. It's just whether it's the first time or a second or third or fourth time. Revival is just a reawakening, okay? Um, the only time that scriptures talk about this kind of revival is when Israel, the Jews, repent and turn to Christ in the very end times. That's it. And that is, I won't go there for the sake of time. This is seen throughout the Old Testament, and of course, in places in the New Testament as well. Other than that, the only thing the Bible, the New Testament tells us is that things are going to get worse. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that we are in the last days. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians, right? With the first coming of Christ, uh, there's an inauguration of the church age, which is the final um, age, uh, the final section of the calendar before uh, eternity. Now, within that section, there is a subsection that we call the end times, but we are in the end of age, the end times, the end of days, okay? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 13 says this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of self, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Let's stop there. You understand um, that as you read this, that this is already happening. We see this. And some of these you may even hear and say, I don't really see how this is really that bad. And that's because it's become so uh, acceptable in our world. In fact, there are uh, certain TV shows and entire uh, magazines that uh, make multi-millions of dollars every year uh, based on the fact that they are malicious gossips, okay? Um, they will pay you to dig up gossip, malicious gossip on people, okay? Disobedient to parents. We, I mean, there's an ent entire generations now uh, that have labels by the secular society that are defined by being disobedient to parents, okay? And so we see this. We're in this. And things will only go from bad to worse. Verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never uh, able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then he gives some personal examples that the, uh, Timothy would be familiar with. Let's jump to verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay? Add to that, you remember, and again, we won't unpack all of them, but there's some really significantly horrible things that need to take place that usher in the second coming of Christ. Again, we're in that inaugurated age. Okay? And so... Um, there's no talk of a revival, <coughs> um, but there's a couple points. Despite this reality that we've just seen, a uh, couple points I want you to keep in mind. First is that the gospel is still active. The gospel is still saving people. The gospel still works, okay? Number two, there may still be revivals. They are just not guaranteed in Scripture or spoken about in Scripture, all right? Okay, let's go to the next question. 
In light of recent events, must we consider stopping the use of companies that censor Christian slash conservative values and promote sin? For example, deleting Twitter, unsubscribing from Netflix, or not investing in these kinds of companies. I'm going to give you a simple answer. And when it comes to these types of companies um, and not obviously things that are just, they are all about sin, uh, hopefully you wouldn't even have to ask, for example, uh, the, 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 the pornography industry and um, the cannabis industry, things like that, right? Um, but for things like this, I would say let your conscience be your guide. And it is a gray area. But I'm going to give you some questions to ask, and these will help you decide and I th hopefully help you understand that the issue is not black and white, but very may well be in your own life. Question number one, why this and not that? I understand that social media is, that's it's, a, it's a form of media, right? And so it's blatant what is put out there. You, you, you speak your opinions uh, or show your life or whatever it may be. It's not subtle. Uh, but there are many companies that we use every day, um, you know, companies that make the wipes and the, and, the, and the hand sanitizer that we rely on these days, right? And if you dig deep enough, many of them are, uh, supporting uh, organizations and businesses uh, that, uh, you know, promote abortions and things like that. And so you've got to ask yourself, why this and not that? Right? We need to be in the world but not of the world. And the only way to be completely removed from all things that promote or allow sin is to create a Christian commune, and that doesn't work, and nor is it allowed in Scripture. On the flip side, there are clearly some things that take it too far, right? You have to be the judge of that. Um, I think it would be different if uh, they were not letting me and some of you post our live stream on Facebook or shutting down our uh, Facebook page. I, I, I'm not saying don't get rid of Facebook. I'm just kind of bringing some things up. For the first uh, year or so of our church's existence, our church website was our Facebook page. Um, so we've got to be careful of how we think through these things. Uh, number two, have you prayed about it? Right? Not just, oh, you know, can I survive? Will, my gran will the grandparents be able to see kids' pictures if I get rid of Facebook or Twitter, right? Don't just pray about the, the inconvenience for you. Right? Are you praying for the platform? Are you praying for the salvation of the people who run these companies? Are you praying for our country? Are you praying for our world leaders? Number three, is it a biblical issue of conscience or not? I'm not saying it's an issue of conscience. Is it a biblical issue of conscience? You have to let your conscience be your guide, but it has to be informed by Scripture. The national anthem is not a biblical issue. You may twist and turn and make it a biblical issue, but it's not a biblical issue. If you don't want to watch a certain sports team because its main players are, are kneeling the national anthem, that's, that's fine. But don't make it a biblical issue. Listen very carefully. First Amendment rights are not a biblical issue. Freedom of religion is not a biblical issue? No. 
Because freedom of religion is a political issue. It's an American issue. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised freedom of religion. Because if freedom of religion is promised in Scripture, then over half of the world has disproved the Bible. Because in 52, 54% of the world, there is no freedom of religion. Okay? Is it a biblical issue of conscience or not? Number four, why are you on that platform in the first place? I mean, maybe this issue has nothing to do with so-called censoring. Maybe you're just wasting too much time on these things. Uh, maybe you're seeking too much uh, uh, feeding into your fear of man and seeking the approval of man on Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. And question number five, the most practical, is the pl platform really censoring Christians for their Christian beliefs? Please stop confusing what the, the media co calls conservative with Christian. Please stop considering what people say pro-Trump as Christian. Conservative does not mean Christian according to the world. Maybe in your mind it does, but you know very well that that's not the case. Do not confuse political censoring with Christian censoring. Do not confuse uh, a politician with God or the Bible. Yes, they may vote according to our beliefs. Yes, they may claim Christianity, but they're a politician. I would go so far as to say they're just a pastor, no matter how much you may respect them and read their books. We need to be very careful with this, guys. And on a side note, and I kind of mentioned this in men's group, uh, some of us Christians really need to tone it down and cut it out with this Trump stuff. You guys, you guys got to be careful with this. I'm all for voting for people according to our values. You know how I feel about Trump. I've been made it very clear in past Q&As. Uh, but you know what? God is sovereign. There is no way, and I, this is what I said in men's group, there is no way that if you really believe that the election was stolen, I mean, they convinced the world. Uh, personally, I don't believe the election was stolen, but if you do, that's fine. But they were able to dupe GOP judges. They were du able to dupe the world, the, the country. But the way Christians talk about it, it almost seems like they were able to dupe God and usurp the sovereignty of God. Even if the election was stolen, we can firmly and fairly say that that was in the sovereignty of God. Let's cut it out and focus on the gospel and focus on what matters. We need to be careful, guys. Question number five. The Bible teaches that there are two biblical grounds for divorce, adultery and abandonment by an unbeliever. Uh, recently, Wayne Grudem argues that 1 Corinthians 7.15 implies divorce is allowed for a third reason, abuse. Is his argument correct or not? Now, we recently looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15, and, you know, what? I'm going to have you turn there just because it'll help um, to understand because I'm going to talk about a specific phrase here. Wayne Grudem is not the first, and he definitely won't be the last to bring up this argument. Uh, I don't believe spousal abuse is anything new in the history of uh, humanity. Uh, we see it even in the Old Testament. 
but I think because of uh, social media and news and things like that, it's, we're becoming more aware of it. And obviously we understand that there's a spike of it as well because of shelter in place. But he's not the first. There's been a growing interest among professional biblical counselors, many papers written regarding whether or not physical abuse is grounds for divorce. Wayne Grudem is one of the most respected theologians who's alive today, mainly because his uh, systematic theology uh, has been the standard in seminaries. Um, there are certain sections that uh, you and I would flat out disagree with. Um, and uh, he, he's actually a man I had the privilege of working with in Albania. Um, but I disagree with him on this point. His whole argument revolves around one Greek phrase in 1 Corinthians 7.15, which we've looked at recently. He says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Remember, abandonment by an unbeliever is allowable. Uh, divorce. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. He takes that phrase, in such, which is translated in such cases, which is traditionally, and I hold the traditional view, that this is going back to the cases that he has just talked about. Grudem says he has recently come to a new understanding of this expression, which refers not to when the unbeliever wants to leave, but to a different, distinct situation. And here's where I believe it really gets... Um, on shaky ground. In his article, he then goes on to list eight different marriage scenarios that could be referred to by this phrase, in such cases. Even if that phrase is not referring back to the scenario that Paul listed, that he wrote about, it in no way gives any indication what scenario he's talking about, and you definitely cannot come up with a list of eight that this is definitely talking about and where divorce is allowed. It's just too dangerous in regards to marriage and divorce, and it's very dangerous hermeneutically to how we can interpret other passages as well. Because if you come at, up with eight, why stop at abuse? Why not, oh, not just this passage, but all of Song of Solomon talks about true love is talking about beautiful and how beautiful she is. Well, she's aged and I don't think she's that pretty anymore. Well, in such cases, cause for divorce. Now, obviously, we wouldn't go that far, hopefully, but it's just you can see how that opens the door for different things. I Again, I respect... Uh, Wayne Grudem, and I respectfully disagree with him uh, on this point. Number six, did Jesus descend to hell after his crucifixion? Does this mean people get a second chance to repent? Uh, there's a long been a debate, an argument. Uh, where did Jesus go for the three days between his physical death and his resurrection? And there is a view of that Jesus went to hell. And the reason he went to hell is to fully pay for our sins because, right, when a, a, a normal person dies without the Savior, he's punished in hell. Uh, the belief or the view that Jesus went to hell is totally unbiblical. 
Let me explain to you why. First, if he went to hell, if he needed to go to hell, he would have gone to hell uh, immediately after he died. What did he tell the thief on the cross? In three days after my time of torment, you will be with me in paradise. No, today. Today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, on the cross right before he died, it is finished. Not it will be finished. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about uh, how he descended some people want to talk about that. No, it's just talking about that. He just, it's simply contrasting earth versus heaven. He descended to earth, and, and, and that's where he was punished. That's where he was crucified. Now, the second part of the question that says, does this mean people get a second chance to repent, I believe is based on 1 Peter 3.19, and where we're told that after Jesus died, he went and he preached to the imprisoned spirits. But you got to look at the whole passage. The whole passage says that the imprisoned spirits were the spirits in the time of Noah. And so there's two views on this. And one is that he was preaching through Noah during the time of Noah. Or there is uh, the, the evil spirits that were there in the time of Noah uh, are now in a holding place, not hell, but they are imprisoned. And Jesus went there to preach to them. But what he was preaching was not gospel repentance. What he was preaching was victory. He was going and telling them, see, it is finished. I am victorious. And so even the context tells us this is not uh, the souls of dead humans in hell. It's evil spirits from the time of Noah. And, uh, frankly, a second chance... Um, to those who are ready in hell, violates everything else uh, in Scripture. And so we know that that's not the case. Okay? So no, Jesus did not go to hell, and no, people do not get a second chance after they die. Question number seven, trying to move at a, at a, a clip here. Is it justified if you lie, quote, for God? Uh, for instance, there are stories that I've heard from some missionaries that they have to lie to immigration officers just to be able to bring Bibles to places that don't allow him or allow it. Also, when Rahab hid the spies in Joshua 2, uh, she lied when she was asked by the men who the king of Jericho sent. So uh, you've probably heard this before, right? A common uh, modern example, missionaries in China they're not allowed to bring Bibles or, or religious materials outside of personal ones. So if you say that, you know, no, this is my personal Bible, obviously you show up with 10 Bibles in your suitcase, uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to confiscate them. That might have changed uh, under the new president. I know things are a lot stricter uh, with them in terms of maybe you can't even bring your personal Bible. I don't know. Um, but there are also certain Arab countries, of course, where the Bible is banned, right? You could get killed for having one. And so... The idea is uh, these people who are importing Bibles, these missionaries, they have to lie at the border uh, and to other people, you know, secret police, whatever, to get those materials in or to continue holding the secret underground church, whatever it may be. Um, that's, a, that's the most common example, but you can even, in terms of, you know, kind of big picture things, you can even uh, mention uh, Christians who lied uh, when the Nazis said, are you hiding Jews here, Right? No, we're not. Uh, let's start with the scriptures. 
okay? Because you always want to start there and then interpret modern experiences and actions through that. And the first thing uh, that makes Scripture, that makes, that the Scripture makes very clear is that lying is a sin. And lying is opposite to the character of God who is truth. I don't think I need to prove that to you. You know that lying is wrong. Um, all over, it's one of the Ten Commandments, but all over the New Testament, right? But I do want to emphasize the gravity of lying. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. 1 Timothy 1, liars are in the list of those who are called lawless and rebellious. And of course, this is those who are unrepentant and characterized by lying. But you know what else is on that list along with liars? Those who kill their parents, homosexuals, and kidnappers. It's a serious thing. But what else is in Scripture? Joshua 2, Rahab. Remember the Jewish spies come in to spy in the land? They find Rahab. They're hiding in her house. The king hears about these spies, sends the men. That's the king's men, says, Hey, we heard these men were here, and Rahab lies. said, yeah, they were here, and then they went. I don't know where they went. Right? She basically says, I don't know where they are, but they're there in her home. Another example, actually, that people use is back in Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives. Remember, Pharaoh said, kill all the male Jewish babies, and the midwives didn't kill them, and then when they were caught, they said, well, these, these Jewish women, they just... Uh, go into labor and they have their babies really quickly and we're not there quick enough um, to strangle the babies, basically. And they were uh, trying to prevent a great evil, right? They didn't want to kill these babies. But back to Rahab. Uh, The special issue that people have with Rahab is then you go to Hebrews 11 where we have the list of examples of faith that are are that great cloud of witnesses that, that we are to look to as encouragement, and Rahab is there, the liar. Verse 31, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Listen to that carefully. By faith, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab nor anywhere uh, the, the, the midwives, are not honored for their lie. She's in this list for welcoming the spies. Right? Same way the midwives saved many lives. But their lying is never condoned, nor is it praised, nor is their lying listed as the reason Rahab is in the Hebrews 11. Nor is their lying the reason that they are praised. Now, I know this is going beyond what the Scriptures say, but we're also not told, hey, maybe if they didn't lie, God still would have made this happen. But what the Scriptures say is that lying is wrong, is against the character of God. Rahab and the midwives lied to do something good, right? We know other people lied, um, but this was to do something good. That's what the Scriptures say. I can go no further. Um, So, we're not even told in Scripture that lying to avoid great evil is a good thing. 
And even if you're not convinced with what I'm saying here, the reality is the kind of situation that you may find yourself in where a lie as a Christian could prevent great evil is extremely rare. Extremely rare. I mean, even, even if you tell the truth and your Bibles are confiscated in the border of China, they're not going to kill anyone for that. Okay? We're not talking Holocaust-type stuff here. But let's say you find yourself in such a situation. There's a few things I want you to remember. Number one is faith. Do you believe God is honored by what you are doing? And I don't mean the lying or not lying. I mean by protecting Jews from uh, the concentration camp or bringing Bibles to someone. Then if so, wouldn't, do you not believe that doing what God wants, that he would honor that? Number two, tell the truth if asked, and only the truth. What do you mean by that? A Chinese border official asks if you have religious materials for distribution. You say yes. If they don't ask you, you don't go through and go, oh, by the way, you didn't ask me about the Bibles. I have Bibles here. You don't need to tell them that right? In that scenario. In other scenarios, right? Where are you going, honey? For a drive. You don't tell her where you're going. That would be considered a lie, okay? But again, the, the situations where you would find yourself in that are rare. And just to be clear, in no way even enters the realm of justifying for a white lie, okay? To spare someone's feelings or whatever it may be. Um, that being said, if there was someone in our church who was frequently lying to get Bibles into China, would I rebuke them? Would I church discipline them? No, I would not. Um, we're at time, but I want to answer this one really quickly. What does the Bible teach about Christians who are not in good standing? For example, those who reject participating in their local church. I know they can't lose their salvation, but what is their status? Um, I won't go there for the sake of time, but if you want to jot these j down, you cannot lose your salvation as indicated by John 6, 39 through 40. Romans 8, 38 through 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right? Romans 8, 29 through 31, right? He will complete the process, right? If he's called you, he will glorify you. There's no break. There's nothing that can change that chain of events, right? Your salvation was secure before you were even saved or born. So what about those who say, I'm a Christian, but they don't live like it, particularly, for example, they don't go to church. You only have two options based on the passages that, unfortunately, for the sake of time, I didn't read, uh, but you know them. Uh, in other words, based on the fact, the biblical truth that you cannot lose your salvation. Well, one, either they are not saved and they never were saved, 
right? Because getting saved and they've lost their salvation is not an option. That's not a thing. Or two, they are saved, but they are in sin. Those are your only two options. But the second one you need to be very careful with. The passage we just read said that once saved, you are conformed to the image of Christ. Okay? Or the passage I just referenced. You are conformed to the image of Christ. Now we sin, we resist, but there is what we call sanctification, spiritual growth. We've all had pockets where we aren't growing, where we're in gross sin, but we eventually repent. When that's occurring for months to a year to many years, there's indication that this person's not saved no matter how they behave, no matter what they say. Over and over again in the Gospels, the Jesus, Jesus says, the true believer, the good tree, bears good fruit. In John 15, 5, it says he bears much fruit. And keep in mind, this is Christian fruit. This is biblical fruit. So this isn't doing good things according to society. This is not even good, doing good things according to the Bible, but for selfish reasons or for cultural reasons. I was raised to be a good girl, good boy. I was raised according to biblical principles. You have atheists who do these things, who say they're atheists, but they were raised in Christian homes, and so they still do these types of things. Okay? Um, it can't just be, well, he's a really good person. He's really moral. He's so patient. He's so good to us. Great. That doesn't mean godly. I've shared this with you before. The most vocal uh, atheist in my high school uh, was the nicest, most moral person in our high school. Um, and I don't know if she still is an atheist. Thankfully, the, the other atheist, her best friend, is actually a believer now. Uh, I found out through Facebook years ago. Um, but assuming this other person is still an atheist, uh, she's a renowned doctor doing really good things, sacrificing a lot to uh, help children, I believe. And so you just don't know, right? Uh, some of the, the best philanthropists and the nicest people, uh, billionaires, millionaires, athletes, they're not Christians. But on the surface, if you spend time with it, they look just like us. They act just like us. Uh, and so um, you've got to look at fruit. Uh, but what you really want to go down to is do the be they believe the gospel? Have they accepted this as true? One of the biggest challenges is when people grow up in the Bible Belt or they've grown up at a Christian or they've grown up in the church. Um, sometimes they think they've accepted Christ, but they haven't. And so they can tell you the gospel and they say, yeah, I believe. Yeah, I've turned to him. And, you know, you gotta, you, that's the starting point. But, but is there fruit? Right? You, you would have trouble believing me if I took you uh, to a clearly dead stump and I said, no, look, it has branches. And you just flick it and the branch cracks off. There, there's, it's dead. You come back in the spring. There's no leaves. 
right? There's no fruit. No, 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 it's a tree, it's a tree. It's dead. Uh, I say that not to discourage you, but I say that to help you to understand the situation and to preach the gospel. Okay? Um, I have one more. There are eight people here, and they unfortunately representing the rest of you 100, so I'm going to answer it. And partly because I said I would. Uh, number nine, is it wrong to have the desire for marriage since it seems like all the reasons for it would be selfish? Uh, for example, wanting companionship. I don't see an unselfish reason for wanting to be married when God alone is enough to satisfy us. But I also know that the Bible says that marriage is good. And in the beginning, God gave Adam uh, and Eve. Oh, g- God gave Adam Eve and told them uh, to multiply. Okay. And so a couple weeks ago, I said I would answer this, and I said that for those of you who are single and struggling um, and wondering if they should stay single, uh, we're really, uh, I said this sermon might help, and I touched base with uh, a couple of them, and they said that sermon actually helped, and so I would start there, right? It's got to be a conviction that you have based on Scripture and not based on pressures or guilt or, or even uh, what people want you to do or think you should do. Um, but I want to tell you that marriage is a good thing. Uh, and it's set up by God as the foundation of society and the church. And there's so much that attests to this. As the asker says in her question, Adam and Eve, right? Remember, God brought all the animals. It wasn't just to name them. He was looking for a helper. And he said, there are no, uh, no animals that are suitable for him. And so he created, God created Eve, right? In the very beginning. And notice, Among all his creation, he created Eve for Adam, not just to be an assistant, not just to be a good buddy, but to be a husband to the point that the two become one flesh and the husband leaves father and mother and joins his wife. Leave and cleave. Secondly, you have the love of the husband for the wife as the illustration of Christ's love for the church. If that doesn't uphold the sanctity and beauty of marriage, I don't know what does. Proverbs 18.22, who he finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. God holds in such high esteem that it's a relationship that he forbids to be broken. Look, God created us to be social beings. That's why he created the church. Single or married, you are part of an interconnected group of body parts that works together and needs one another. Side note, you're like, well, that's them. I'm part of the church, but I'm not really, you know, I'm not like them. We are suffering because you're not serving. We need you, and you need us. But this is embodied in marriage. The two become one, rely on one another. Is the desire for marriage selfish? It absolutely can be but it doesn't have to be. Every one of us pursued marriage for selfish reasons. I sit sit down with a a couple for premarital. They're engaged or want to be engaged. Or even friends call me like, I think I I found her. She's the one. Even a friend that was uh, in seminary at the time. Okay? Wanted to be a pastor. 
Did, did she make you a better Christian? I never thought about that. What do people say? Why do you like her? Why do you want to marry her? Oh, her sense of humor. We like the same things. She's really pretty. Uh, she respects me. We have a lot of fun together. We can talk about everything. Uh, me, 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 me. Selfish, selfish, selfish. And we all do it, right? And the God has blessed us with uh, the privilege of finding someone that we're compatible. It doesn't say you're a Christian, she's a Christian, marry her, right? Uh, we get to have preferences, right? Some need to be more important than others, right? If you just like her or you're just breaking up with her because, eh, I've always wanted a brunette, she's blonde, there's a problem there, right? I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say stay together because your sin is going to mess that up later on, fix your heart. But the Lord gives us preferences on sense of humor, styles, ethnicity, height, color eyes, right? It's wonderful. It's, it's the same thing, right? We, we're not just giving manna from heaven, which we would be thankful for, but a variety of foods. But we need to be careful that we don't make it all about us. And understand God's view of marriage is so that you can serve Him synergistically better than before, better than you could apart. Now, that is possible, but you won't do that unless you pursue that. And you won't be able to uh, be capable of that if you are just uh, approaching marriage selfishly. You will be capable of that eventually. But, you, look, even your wedding is going to look a lot different, right? I, I'm not saying, you know, I know people, uh, I don't know any men, but I, I know a lot of women who have been planning their wedding since they hit puberty, right? I'm not saying throw that all out the window, right? You, again, you can still have those, what dress you want, what flowers you want, all that kind of thing, colors, things like that. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, but, you know, you, you, you've seen this. You've seen the difference between someone who's just committed to, you know, the gospel is preached at their wedding, right? The wedding favors have verses. You know, I mean, I'm not saying you have to do those things, but there's, there's even a different feel to it, right? And, and so um, you want to go into marriage um, selflessly and, and understanding that, again, Enjoy your preferences, seek those preferences, uh, but just be careful about being overly selfish. Think about ministry. Think about, uh, you know, church. Think about serving this person. Think about fulfilling your roles, right? Well, you know, you know I, had a, I had a friend in college, and his philosophy is just find a girl who's a Christian, she's teachable, and she's really pretty, and then you know, she'll grow. And he dated a couple people like that, and man, did, it just didn't work out. Because dating a little while, he knew, like, this is not going to work out. She won't let me lead. She won't, uh, you know, she won't submit. I can't lead her. Uh, Got to call her to wake her up to go to church. I mean, th that's not good, right? You want to have someone who's thriving in their relationship with God, who, who makes you a better Christian. You know, another person asked, um, for me to share my own uh, personal testimony that we don't really have time for that. Um, but I, I will tell you this, and again, I'm in no way the, the prime example, 
Uh, but I was, I, I got to a point where I was so frustrated being single, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, maybe the Lord wants me to be single for life, and I was praying about that. When I met my wife and we started dating, I had to tell her, and I didn't know this, Ray. She had already fallen in love with me. She was ready to marry me, and I, I had to call her and say, uh, I need to let you know that I need to work this out with the Lord because right before I met you, I thought maybe I should stay single for life. And you guys know my story because by then I'd been a pastor. I was a pastor. I was a seminary professor. I was a missionary. I was leading, running a Bible school, all single. And, and my teammates were like, man, you have so much time uh, more than we do because you're single and you can do these things. So maybe the Lord wants me to do that. I say, well, how did that all change? And I'll tell you this, and you've been told this, all the time. You don't know what it means sometimes. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how to do it. But in hindsight, this is what happened. For the first time in my life since college, probably high school, I was content being single, and the Lord brought Jenny into my life. You've been told that before. You need to be content being single. Yeah, you told that a million times. You get fresh. Stop telling me that, right? And it finally happened, and the Lord brought Jenny into my life. And unless you've only joined us through live stream, and even if you've only joined us through li- live stream, uh, you have, and I'm not just saying this at her hus- as her husband, you know very well, you've got to be out of your mind to think that my wife has not had a huge impact on your life in our church. I was finally content. Right? It's not secret. The Bible doesn't promise that, but it's, it's what people say. Right? Uh, and, and so because of all these things that we've talked about, it was clear to me uh, that singleness wasn't for me. And what I also wanted to say, and again, uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but just like to give you an example. One of my, my primary concern with Jenny, and I actually talked to my older married with kids, uh, um, missionary teammates about this, and a couple of them laughed at me. They thought I was crazy. Um, and so I honestly, I just said, well, I'm not taking your advice. And other ones were like, well, you know, you work through that. My main concern was that, you know, we were all long distance. So we were on Skype. We were on the phone. Uh, you know, I was living in Europe. She was living in the U.S. And there were days uh, where I was clearly frustrated by things. I was in sin because of my anger, and my wife wouldn't rebuke me, my girlfriend at the time. And that was my primary concern, and I thought, I don't know if I can marry her because as a pastor, as a Christian, I want someone who not only is willing to, but will quickly rebuke me for my sin. Uh, She's grown in that, thankfully, but she wasn't doing that back then, and that was uh, actually cause enough for me to say, I don't know if I want to pursue marriage with this girl. All that to say, these are the types of things and more that you want in a you know not on a first date, right? Uh, but that's what you want in a girlfriend. That's what you want in a boyfriend because that's what you want in a husband or wife. And as things get serious, if you can't talk to him about that or you can't talk to her about those things, if you're always walking on eggshells, you don't even know the person well enough so that you can get into their life and confront them or encourage them. That's a major problem. That's not going to change. Uh, just because you say I do, okay? If anything, it, it may get worse. And so these are types of things, you know, keep it spiritual. Um, don't just focus all on material, physical, selfish things.
All right, hope those were helpful. Keep sending in your questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us and uh, the clarity of your word in answering all these questions. Um, for us, I pray that you would uh, continue to help uh, the people of Grace Church of the Bay Area uh, to have inquisitive minds, not just because they want to fill their heads with knowledge, but because we want to know you better to grow and to help others grow as well. Help us to not just rely on the pastor, but to rely on you and the word and uh, continue to, to strengthen us as a church, Lord. Bring us together in person soon, Lord, but until then, uh, may we find that sweetness in trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, let's stand as we continue our worship and give a, a word of thanks uh, to the Lord for even sustaining me over this